you would turn to Galatians, the sixth chapter, Galatians chapter six, as we had our scripture reading from there, and we'll be focusing our attention there in a moment. Galatians chapter six, it's a joy to be with all of you again this morning to be able to worship God together and to edify one another in spirit and in truth and prepare ourselves to go back out into the world and to shine our lights and reflect the glory of God as we submit to his will. It's been an encouraging morning and I hope that this study will be of benefit to you as well. In uh, Galatians 6 and verse 9, the Apostle Paul says, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We had a study from this text a couple of weeks ago where we focused in on verse 9 especially and considered, as Harry talked a little bit about this morning, the tactics of Satan, primarily his tactic of weariness on the faithful. And I think that these lessons will complement each other once again where Harry stressed in a couple of different points in his lesson this morning about how Satan targets the faithful. He's got everyone else, and he targets the faithful. And especially in Galatians 6, the context is those who are faithful, who are spiritually mature, and who are helping to restore others who have been overtaken in a a spirit of gentleness. They help them to, to be restored back to God. And we discussed a couple of weeks ago how as we grow in maturity in Christ, we start to be able to discern good and evil a little more clearly. And so some things that would have gotten us early on in our faith don't get us anymore, at least not to that capacity. And we've grown to realize truth in contrast to error and righteousness in contrast to unrighteousness. Our eyes are opened. We are illuminated with the gospel of Christ, and therefore we see the path to follow. But that path is also still difficult. And so for the faithful, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, one of Satan's primary weapons, not his only weapon for sure, but one of his greatest weapons is weariness, where we are toiling in the kingdom of the Lord and we are working and we are laboring and we're doing his will, we're doing good, and it is difficult. And Satan tries to wear us down with that weariness. Well, after that lesson, someone came up to me and, and gave me some encouragement, but one of the things that person said, I won't name the name because I didn't ask them about that, but is I'd like to hear part two of that lesson because you might have remembered at the very end of the lesson we talked about some things that we could engage in to overcome weariness. And the lesson was about things that Satan tries to do to us to weary us and we need to not grow weary. We need to keep doing good. I think it's very, very important that we think about the things that Scripture has revealed to us that are a a tool and a weapon to use against Satan's onslaught against us of weariness. And so... After a quick review, we'll get to that point in a moment, and I hope that it can be beneficial to you. We looked at the text in its context a couple of weeks ago. Firstly, noting in verse 1, he said that you who are spiritual are going to restore that one overtaken in a trespass in a spirit of gentleness. And we discussed the fact that you who are spiritual, it it comes in from Galatians chapter 5, where he speaks about, how we're to be walking according to the Spirit. We are to be denying the works of the flesh and the things that we desire and instead submit ourselves to the Spirit's teaching and bear the fruit of the Spirit. And so that spiritual person is merely a Christian who is faithful, who is righteous, who is spiritual in their mind and in their practices. And what they're trying to do is so to the Spirit. When we get down to verse 9, he had just said in verse 8 that, Those who sow to the flesh will reap corruption, but those who sow to the Spirit will reap everlasting life. And sowing takes work. And so this faithful one is doing the Spirit's will, submitting to the Spirit's teaching. And one of the ways in which he's doing that is calling other people to faithfulness. And sowing to the Spirit in general is already a difficult task. But I think that we can all... It resonates with all of us, and we can all appeal to that feeling of the weariness in calling others to faithfulness. And how others who are overtaken in sin need to be pointed back to the way of righteousness. And how difficult that can be, and how much sacrifice that it it takes, and and what things can come out of that that we start to think about and, 
and worry about and get wearied by it, but he's calling them to restore these people. And in the restoration of these people, he's calling the people who are overtaken in a trespass to share in the Spirit's teaching with the one who is faithful trying to restore you. God is not going to be mocked if you keep sowing to the flesh after this man is trying to restore you back to the Spirit's teaching. You're going to reap corruption. And so start sowing to the Spirit. But in the whole midst of this is the idea of those trying to be faithful in doing so. And they need to endure the burdens of faithfulness, period. Sowing is work. Sowing takes effort. You notice in verse 5, he says, Each one shall bear his own load. And the New King James Version, the American Standard Version, says that each man shall bear his own burden. And while Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, his burden is easy, his yoke is light, he does not say that there is no burden. He told the disciples to count the cost. And faithful brethren are those who have counted the cost, but we stress that there is still a cost. And that cost, Jesus never minimized. And so we talked about a few things that we're going to have to endure as faithful brethren. And there are going to be things Satan tries to take advantage of and causes us to be weary wants us to give up what we're doing. As Harry stressed, he is focusing in on those who are doing the most good for the Lord's cause. And so we need to make sure we're not growing weary with these things. We talked about the weight of the world. We saw Lot as an example who pitched his tent towards Sodom and tormented his righteous soul from day to day by the filthy conduct and speech of the wicked. And we know how much of a toll the world has on us. Everywhere we turn is immorality and his sin, and ungodliness, and blasphemy, and it is just piling up and piling up each day. Satan would have you to grow weary and fall in with the world. But we know that there are various characters throughout the Scriptures that have the same kind of weariness and temptation, who look to their Maker and their God and gain strength in that time of weariness and overcame it and maintained their faith. We looked at the fact that Satan's going to try to weary us with the weight of truth. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he encouraged Timothy to preach the word in season and out of season. You preach it when it's easy to preach it and people want to hear it. And they're patting you on the back and telling you what a good job you're doing and standing for the truth and praising God and the proclamation of his word. And then they're going to people be people who don't want to hear the truth. And they're not going to endure sound doctrine. We looked at that for a moment. The fact that sound doctrine is healthy for us. It is indeed that which promotes spiritual health and life before God. But like medicine, sometimes we've got to endure it. It's, it's hard to hear sometimes. It takes sacrifice. It takes change. It takes effort. And it makes people opposed to us as they're opposed to the truth of God. And so we need to bear with the word of exhortation, as the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews 13 and verse 22. We've got to maintain faith and stand for the truth, no matter how difficult it can be. And then lastly, we looked at the weight of the unfaithful that may cause us to be weary. And in 2 Thessalonians 3, we read of one of the places in the New Testament where the pattern of church discipline is revealed, where there are those who are unruly. That word, ataktos, is a general word that denotes any disorderliness and rebellion against God stepping out of line to any capacity. And that the brethren were called to withdraw from those people. But we noted a parallel passage in 1 Corinthians 5 where they were not doing that. And what Paul said is instead of being prideful and puffed up and rejoicing and acting as if this sin is not touching this congregation and it's just perfectly fine, you ought to have rather mourned. And I think faithful brethren mourn. That's their immediate response. When they find out a brother or sister in Christ, and perhaps it's our own family member in the flesh, perhaps it's someone very close to us, decides to go back into the world. We mourn as if we actually lost them from this life because it's that serious. And that's how focused we are on the spiritual things. So in First, Second Thessalonians 3, he says, don't grow weary while doing good. The doing good there is maintaining your faith and dealing with that sin in a faithful manner so that they have something to come back to. Because what Satan wants you to do is get so swallowed up in sorrow and weariness that you fall away from the truth, and then who are they going to return to? What foundation will there be? And so Satan wants to weary us and jeopardize that possibility of the faithfulness of ourselves before God, despite what others are doing, and the place for the unfaithful to repent and turn back to. 
And so we ended the lesson with some things that we need to think about and stress and focus on so we can overcome that weariness. And we very briefly talked about the exhortation that we can give to one another as we seek to live lives of faith before God. We also talked very briefly about how we can rejoice in the Lord. Paul says always, and again I will say rejoice. Satan's trying to weary us, and we have cause to rejoice. So rejoice in the Lord, and part of rejoicing in the Lord, we briefly talked about, is rejoicing in hope. I want to flesh those things out a bit this morning, and I certainly hope that it will be beneficial to you. So notice, firstly, that in order to overcome weariness, one of the things that we need to understand and take heed to and be involved in, but not only in giving it, but receiving it, is the exhortation of our brethren in the Lord's body. In Hebrews, the third chapter, we see an example of this, and we know the context of Hebrews are those Jewish believers who are being persecuted, and they're growing weary. And though they've accepted the Christ and they've accepted the blessings of the Messianic promises that we've been studying about in Isaiah, and they've acknowledged Jesus of Nazareth to be the fulfillment of those things, and they've been illuminated and they've come to their senses and they've, they've accepted the goodness and graciousness of God. He enumerates some of those things in chapter 6. They've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Well, they're growing weary now. It was great at the beginning, and they were willing to endure all of this persecution, and now they're growing weary, and they're turning back. And the Hebrew writer is saying, listen, don't turn back to what you know is inferior to what you accepted in the first place. Don't grow weary. And so he warns them in various places. Hebrews 3 and verse 12 is one of them. And I think we're familiar with the verse. He says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. He calls them to exhort one another daily. It's hard being faithful. Sin is deceitful. Satan has not laid down his arms against you because you've obeyed the gospel. If anything, he's equipping himself further because it's going to be more difficult to make you fall now and it would be more advantageous to his cause to cause a faithful person to turn back to the world. As Second Peter says, that it would have been better for him to not have ever known the way of truth. And so we need to exhort one another is what the Hebrew writer says. And he quoted from Psalm 95 in verses 7 through 11 in the context giving the Israelites as an example of apostasy. The fact that they were saved from the captivity in Egypt. They were made to walk through the wilderness. Though God provided for them, they complained and they grew weary as well. And they did not look by faith to God. That gospel that was preached to us was preached to them as well, chapter 4 says, but it was not mixed with faith in those who heard it. And so they turned back from God, and they wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back into the captivity from whence God had saved them, and they fell from that promise that God had given them. And he especially looks at two situations in that psalm, Massa and Meribah. And you remember in Exodus 17 where they had no water to drink, and they complained, and God brought them water forth from the rock and named the place Massa and Meribah. And then in Numbers 20, it happened again. Thirty-eight years later, after they wandered in the wilderness, they still had not learned their lesson. They grow weary, and they complain. They had no water to drink, and God provided for them yet again. So what Satan's trying to get us to do is, in our faithfulness, start longing again for the world, and he does that through, as the Hebrew writer says, the deceitfulness of sin. It's easier to turn back. There's more pleasure to turn back. Sacrifice is hard. Giving in to my desires is fulfilling. That's what Satan is trying to get us to understand. And it's a lie. It's deceitful. And so the Hebrew writer's whole solution to this is exhort one another. Encourage each other to faithfulness. What if that had been apparent in the Israelites through the wilderness? What if every single person of God in Israel was encouraging their neighbor, their brothers, their sisters, 
that we can just get through this by God's help and get to the promised land. It's going to be worth it. God knows what's best for us. This is for our good always, is what they would be told later to teach their children. Don't make the same mistakes of those who died in the wilderness. This is for our good. What if they had known that then and encouraged each other? So he says, exhort one another. One of the ways we do that is in Hebrews 10, in verse 24. He says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And so the assembly is called by God for certainly worship to Him, glorifying His holy name, but He also knew it would have been advantageous to His children and, in fact, a need, a desperate need for His children to be among those of like precious faith, exhorting to do what is the Lord's will. And what we do in the assembly is we agitate each other to love and good works. We stir each other up. We push each other to do the Lord's will and to glorify Him. Well, I think we can be impressed by these exhortations to exhort one another and the fact that God saw it fit to give His people a community of encouragers and of helpers, of those who would aid each other on this path to heaven. Exhorting one another, assembly in itself, it's, it's language connoting community and involvement with each other. There is a community of faith that God has blessed us with, the family of God, His church that He called out. And what that tells me is that if we're going to get to heaven, if we're going to overcome weariness, I need help. I need my brothers and sisters. It's not good that man should be alone, we see in creation. So God gave Adam Eve. In Ecclesiastes, we see that it's not good to be alone. It's better to have a partner to help you and to warm you and strengthen you. And so it is with the Lord's church. Throughout the scriptures of the New Testament, we see that kind of community language, so to speak, where there is a a one anotherness and a togetherness where we help each other get to heaven. Think about the mystery of Christ revealed in Ephesians, where in chapter 1 he speaks about that mystery that is fulfilled and made known in the revelation of God's wisdom. He says in verse 10 of Ephesians 1 that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Who is that involving? In chapter 2, of Ephesians. He talks about the Gentiles are now added to that body. And notice in verse 19, he says, Therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens and saints with the saints and members of the household of God, being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, and whom the whole building being fit together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. In chapter 4, speaking of the edification of the church, he explained in verse 16, the whole building is joined and knit together by which every joint supplies, according to the effect of working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That should impress us. We need each other, and we need to know each other good enough to Tell whether we're struggling with something and whether we are weary so that we can encourage each other. He says, exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. But I think we need to be aware of what exhortation actually involves. I think that's missing from time to time in my experience. We need to exhort each other. We need to encourage each other. What are you talking about? And it can involve many different things, but I think sometimes the language and the examples given by some brethren manifest a misunderstanding of the main point of exhortation. They misunderstand what we are doing in exhorting one another and how we're going to help each other maintain faith. Exhort is from the Greek word perikaleo. It's a compound word meaning ultimately to call to one side, a word that means calling and one that means to the side. So it's a literally calling to one side to help. It may be you're calling someone to help you, but more often in the New Testament, I'm calling someone to my side to help them. So Thayer says it means to address or speak to, to call upon, which may be done in the way of exhortation or entreaty, comfort, instruction, 
Vine says this, it means, and this is the main use of it in the New Testament, to admonish, exhort, to urge one to pursue some course of conduct. And so in Hebrews 10, in verses 24 and 25, when he says, exhort one another in the assembly, he says, stirring up love and good works. It's an urging you to be faithful. Don't grow weary, continue to do good. Continue to be faithful to the Lord. And I think a great example of this that I know that you've heard much about throughout the years is Barnabas. He is a prime example of exhortation, of this calling near others so as to help them. He is called in Acts 4 and verse 36 by the apostles, the son of encouragement. In our Bible class this morning, we talked about how in Isaiah 57, the children of Israel were called sons and children of various things. And it means they're associated with them intimately. And they were negative things in Isaiah 57. Well, Barnabas was so much of an exhorter and encourager that the apostles called him son of encouragement. And that's the word paraklesis. And so the root of that is what we see in Hebrews chapter 3, parakaleo. He is the son of encouragement. I think Barnabas is a great example of us to understand what it means to be exhorting one another, encouraging one another. Notice there in that very context, as he's called the son of encouragement, he was one who had land and sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Other people were doing this, verses 32 through 35 indicate that. Barnabas is identified, perhaps by Luke, to introduce him into the account, as we'll see him, the a travel companion of Paul and do much good for the kingdom of Christ, and also as a stark contrast to Ananias and Sapphira of chapter 5 who, who lied about their proceeds and they did not actually give everything they had to the Lord and were struck dead. Barnabas was an encourager, an exhorter, and that in part he helped his brethren who were in need. And there's a depth to that that I hadn't always realized. Because I'm thinking to be spiritually minded means all of that physical stuff is minuscule. It, it shouldn't bother us as much. It's little, and, and we're focused on the spiritual. And there's a point in time when you reach a maturity where it isn't as big a deal, but at the same time as you progress in your life, those things get harder and become a bigger deal. And especially in my youth, I, I didn't draw the spiritual connection between aiding someone physically and what that would do spiritually. There's a depth to this. And so this encouraging one another by providing for each other's needs has a lot to do with bolstering our faith to overcome weariness and maintain faith. Notice in verse 32, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. The apostles, having received a threat, prayed to God, were strengthened and preached the word all the more boldly. And the church grew. And these people are unified in faith. They have a connection that is strong. And in verse 33, that power was continually expressed. And the witness of the apostles of the resurrection of the Lord and great grace was upon them all. As they're growing spiritually and getting closer to the Lord, they're getting closer to each other. And that's the tie that binds our hearts. It's in Christian love, as we sing from time to time. There is nothing that should draw us closer together than the truth. That's what brings us together. And the reason why they had concern for one another in their physical needs is because of that spiritual connection. And so in verse 32, as they were of one heart and one soul, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. It's not communism. It's Christianity. It's a love for our fellow brother or sister in Christ. Because they had that commonality of faith, they were willing to give of their own to help out their brother or sister in need. And so Barnabas was a part of that. But what would that do to help them overcome not just this weariness of the flesh, but a weariness that was trying by Satan to wear them down spiritually? In James chapter 2, we read a little bit about how prayer works and how God works to help his people. Remember, faith without works is dead is James's point. And so he gives this example. If one of you says to your brother who is naked or destitute of daily food, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? We have faith that God cares for his children, 
He sees our needs and our struggles and will provide for us. And it's a good thing to give that well wish, and it's a good thing to pray about that. But you see, the spiritual one who is going to exhort others to not grow weary in their difficulty will not just say, I'm going to pray for you, but will take from their own pocket and resources and time and effort and energy and make sacrifice to be God's instrument to help out that brother or sister in Christ. And it doesn't just stop there. You aren't just involved in a wonderful work. And that person does not just find relief from their physical struggles, but there is a great spiritual work that is begun. In 2 Corinthians 9, speaking of the contribution and wanting the Corinthians to finish that good work that they had started, he talks about how this doesn't just apply for their physical need, but there's a very spiritual reaction to it. In verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 9, he said, May he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. If we help our brethren who are in need, we, we have the possibility and opportunity and resources to help them and they actually need it. And we help them, don't think for a second it's just some physical thing that you just did. It's going to bolster their faith. Maybe they've been praying for help from God, and you were the answer to their prayers. That's how God works. There is providence. Understand how exhortation can help us stay faithful and overcome weariness. Barnabas is a great example. In chapter 9, it continues with his exhortation, where the apostle Paul, or Saul, the persecutor, becomes the apostle Saul, Paul, he will later be called. And it says in verse 26 of Acts chapter 9, Saul had come to Jerusalem and he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. I think there's two sides to this exhortation of Barnabas. No doubt it would have been an encouragement to Paul. He's not been a Christian very long, And now he comes to these brethren in Jerusalem, and they are hesitant to accept him. You think that would have made Paul weary? He was already weary by the the fact that he had persecuted the church, and lest he is swallowed up with too much sorrow, Ananias is sent to him so that he can receive the remission of his sins. He goes on his way, no doubt, rejoicing and telling people about the salvation that he's received. And he comes to almost the hub of the church at this time. This is where it started in Jerusalem. Galatians 2, this is where some pillars are. This is where some apostles are. And they're hesitant to receive him. How much do you think Barnabas had to do with the good work that Paul would do in the kingdom of God? He had a ton to do with that. He helped Paul overcome weariness, no doubt, but I think that he helped these brethren overcome weariness as well. They're expected to receive the one who has been murdering their family, who has been persecuting their brethren, and Barnabas is saying, listen, do the right thing. This is your responsibility. But not only that, they thought they had a good understanding with the grace and the mercy and the salvation of God and forgiveness. I think as Barnabas encouraged them to receive their new brother in Christ, who had been those, one of those who has murdered their family, who has caused them great harm and heartache and trouble, who has caused them all this weariness, and they were able to, because they've been forgiven, forgive him. How much good did that do for their faith? Now they get it. Now they understand God's grace. How could he save me? How could he forgive me? Well, I get it now that I'm expected to forgive the great persecutor of the church. In chapter 11... Barnabas is called to go to Antioch, and no wonder they called him to go to Antioch when they learned of the Hellenists who had obeyed the gospel. And you know what? He didn't hesitate. He, he did not oppose that call. In Galatians 2, that's why it says even Barnabas was carried away with Peter's hypocrisy and showing the hypocrisy and in, 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 uh, in going away from the Gentiles. Barnabas went to those people to encourage them. News of these things, verse 22 of Acts 11 came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. Things aren't always going to be easy. You need to get ready. You need to do 
what is right. You need to know this. You need to know that. And he built them up in the holy faith and encouraged them that when temptation comes, when trial comes, when tribulation comes, when you have this turmoil, even in your own family, you stay faithful. He taught them the word of God and he bolstered their faith. He went out of his way to do this. And lastly, in Acts the 15th chapter, after the Jerusalem council, when they were going to go back and revisit some places that they had preached the gospel and made uh, disciples of these places and nations, Paul says, let us go back. And Barnabas, in verse 37, was determined to take with him John called Mark. Now, in Acts chapter 13, in their missionary journey, Mark left. We don't know why. But evidently, it was a sign of weakness. It was a sign of immaturity to Paul. Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And the contention became so sharp, they departed from one another. And Barnabas took Mark, sailed to Cyprus. In 2 Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and in verse 11, the words of Paul, he said, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. What if Barnabas had not encouraged, exhorted to faithfulness Mark who had made a mistake, who had shown a sign of weakness? You know, I think that what Paul did, his attitude, there's no indication Paul was sinning in doing this. He's an individual who understands what it takes, and no doubt Mark needed to understand how serious this was, and that he needs to count the cost, and he needs to sober up, and he needs to press on, but Paul is not going to take him. He needed that. He needed to realize what's at stake. And he needed Barnabas to tell him, you can do this. You can be an asset for the kingdom of God. All is not lost. And certainly Paul realized that in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 11. And so you see, exhorting one another to not grow weary, to stay faithful, it's it's about more than just patting each other on the back and telling each other, hope you have a good day. I think that's good. And that's encouraging to me. But exhortation is about calling each other to faithfulness. As the Apostle Paul said, he exhorted them in 1 Thessalonians 2 that they would walk worthy of God who calls them into his own kingdom and glory. It's about calling people to growth in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verses 1 and 2. He exhorted them in the Lord Jesus to abound more and more. And it is about exhorting people by calling them to comfort and the hope that we have in Christ. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, he talks about those who have fallen asleep and how they need to have hope because those who sleep in Jesus will be raised again and will be with them forever and comfort one another with these words, verse 18. Well, the context continues in chapter 5 talking about how we need to live sober lives. Get out of sin because we know the Lord's coming and He's going to give us this reward. We'll see our loved ones who have passed away and they comforted and edified one another with those words as well. Verse 11 of chapter 5. That's exhortation. It's not always something that brings us pure comfort. It's something that calls us to faithfulness. It calls us back to reality. We're so wearied, get out of that fog and serve the Lord. That's exhortation. We need that from each other. We're not going to make it. Secondly, we need to rejoice in the Lord. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. You know, part of that doing good and sowing to the Spirit is seen in Galatians chapter 5 in regard to the fruit of the Spirit, where it says we are to put on joy. Even the faithful brethren can lose perspective. And they need to be called back to that sobriety. They need to reorient themselves and understand there's something to rejoice in. It doesn't matter how bad it's gotten and how much Satan is throwing on us to weary us and cause us to turn away from the Lord. He says rejoice in the Lord always. And as if that wasn't enough, he says again, I will say rejoice. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 16, we're told to rejoice always. But be impressed with what that means. In 2 Corinthians the 6th chapter, the Apostle Paul speaking of his apostolic ministry starts talking about some paradoxes, and one of those is we're always sorrowful, we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. How can that be? That's what joy is. And in the Lord is always cause to rejoice. That's what Christians are. And they're not optimistic, and they're not joyous people because they're free from all negative circumstances, much to the contrary, as Harry talked about this morning. Faithful brethren are going through stuff. Faithful brethren are having to endure 
various trials and tribulation. It's not being free from negative circumstances. It's being freed from the control of those negative circumstances. And that's key. That's important. How do you do that? It says rejoice in the Lord always. That's the key. Rejoice in the Lord. And it's saying, I think, two different things. The same verse is talking about this idea of of rejoicing in, in the fact that the Lord has blessed me and rejoicing in the fact that the Lord is and all that He's done. You rejoice in the Lord. But it's also talking about the sphere of your rejoicing. You're in the Lord. In the Lord is joy. If you're in the Lord, you can rejoice always. That's key. I came across a quote in my studies that really encapsulates this idea, rejoice in the Lord always. A man by the name of Stanley Jones says that the early Christians did not say in dismay, look what the world has come to. They said in delight, look what has come to the world. Not look what the world has come to. That's not joy. That's weariness. That's not optimism. That's pessimism. That's not hope. That's despair. But look what has come to the world. That's the difference. The world will always be wicked. The world will always be lost. The world will always be sinful. The world will always have death. The world will always have decay. But Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul says, of whom I am chief. In Acts 3, Peter says, you repent of this and you be converted to the Lord. He says that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Christ has come into the world. It's not about what the world has come to, but who came to the world. And if you are in Him, in the world, you are also in Christ. You're not of the world. You are in the kingdom and following the Lord's will. That's cause for rejoicing. In John 15, and this analogy of Jesus being the vine and Father being the vine dresser, we, we abide in Him and bear fruit. It's about keeping His commandments. Verses 9 and 10. You love Him by keeping His commandments. It's about discipline. He's pruning us and cleaning us to bear more fruit. All of that, all that's involved in discipleship and being in the Lord and bearing fruit for His cause and being disciplined and changing ourselves and making sacrifices and loving the Lord even though the world will hate us for it, He says in verse 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Do you realize that about our service in the kingdom? Do you feel that way about it? Does it bring you immeasurable joy? It brought Jesus joy to serve His Father. To refrain from sin, work righteousness, and preach the word of His Father. It brought joy to Him. He's saying, I'm calling you to abide in Me so that what I had as a joy can be yours and be full. And the Apostle John adapted this language in 1 John chapter 1. What we have seen, what we have felt, what we have heard, we declare that your joy may be full. Brethren, it's a joy to be in the Lord. And be serving Him. And it doesn't matter what else touches you on the outside. You always have that relationship if you're faithful. And that's cause for rejoicing. So look in Philippians very briefly at some things that Paul enumerates throughout this epistle of joy. Keeping in mind he's writing from prison. It's not freedom from negative circumstances. It's freedom from the control of those negative circumstances. The world is always going to be this way. But Christ Jesus came into the world. And he says that there's joy in fellowship in the gospel. He's praying for them. And in every prayer, he makes requests with joy for their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And certainly that fellowship would include what he says in the fourth chapter about their support of him in the gospel preaching. But notice in verse 7, he says this, Just as it is right in me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of, with me of grace. You're, you're suffering too. It's not that it's just by proxy where I'm in prison because I'm preaching the gospel. And that involves you too because you sent me support. There's some truth to that. But at the end of Philippians 1, he talks about how they need to strive together with one mind for the gospel, not being terrified of their adversaries, but understanding it's been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but suffer for His sake. That's something to rejoice in. There's joy in being a part of such a magnificent cause of suffering for the Lord who bought you. Likewise, as he's sitting in a prison cell and he's 
thinking about his relationship with God and what his whole purpose is in preaching the gospel, he rejoices because of the gospel's success. He's in prison. But he says in verses 12 through 14 that it has given me a, an opportunity so that the whole palace guard is evident or, or has seen that it becomes evident that his chains are in Christ. It has turned out, verse 12, for the furtherance of the gospel. And so he, he preached in Philippi, was put in prison, and rejoiced in the Lord, and that jailer was saved. In prison, there was provision for the gospel success. And he's in prison in Rome, and he still sees there's something to rejoice in. The gospel is not changed, as he says in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 9. The word of God is not changed. Not only that, he has some enemies, verses 15 through 18, who preach from envy and strife, supposing to add affliction to his chains. But whether they preach in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, and yes, we'll rejoice. They weren't preaching error, but they were preaching from selfish ambition and impure motives. Paul is rejoicing, though, because Christ is being preached. There's always something to rejoice in. He says in chapter 2 that they would fulfill his joy by being like-minded, having the same love, and being of one accord and one mind. He talked about the things they'd received from the Lord. He talked about consolation in Christ, comfort from his love, and fellowship, that relationship with the Spirit and, and participation in the things that the Spirit has revealed and the affection and mercy they've received from God. So all of you know that you are loved in that capacity, have received those blessings. And what will bring Paul joy is to see that in that knowledge that each one of you have received blessings like this from the Lord of a spiritual nature, that you view each other in an appropriate manner. Be like-minded, be humble among each other, and look out for each other's interests. Let nothing be done in selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. There's much joy in the fact that we're a part of a people who are going to help each other because they've been helped by Christ. This is the mind that should be in us as it was first in Christ Jesus. And lastly, in chapter 4, as we alluded to it, he rejoiced not that he needed the money from the Philippians. He wasn't even worried about that. He knows how to be content. He has learned that in Christ who strengthens him. But notice what he rejoices in. Verse 17, I do not seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Things may be rough in your life. Things may be difficult. You may be getting weary. But shouldn't you rejoice in the growth of your brother or sister in Christ? Shouldn't you rejoice in the peace and the progress in Christ that someone else is having and displaying? That brought Paul joy. That's why we come together. We're encouraged by each other as we see each other standing for the truth and growing in Christ. We need to seek the fruit that abounds to the account of others. And lastly, we need to rejoice in hope. In Romans 12 and verse 12, part of the response to the mercies of God is that we would be rejoicing. That's a constant thing, a present tense, in hope. That's part of rejoicing in the Lord. What's ironic about this is that what we allow ourselves to be wearied by at times can actually lead us, that which is causing us weariness, can lead us to a deeper and more meaningful relationship with Christ. And therefore, since there's joy in the Lord, to greater rejoicing. Harry mentioned 2 Corinthians 12 earlier this morning. I think the Apostle Paul is a prime example of this idea that something that is meant to cause us weariness, it's a messenger of Satan to buffet him, to torment him, verse 7, lest he be exalted above measure. God's allowing this to happen. And it's meant by Satan for his demise, for his weariness, for his apostasy. And you know he's weary because he pled with the Lord three times that it might depart from him. And when God gave the answer, Christ said, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. This is Paul's response. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He takes pleasure in these things. That word boast is the same Greek word translated to rejoice in glory in Romans 5 and verses 2 and 3. You rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but you glory or rejoice in tribulation. So that thing that can weary us, and it's meant by Satan for weariness, 
it can actually be something that draws us closer to God. It makes us realize our need for Him, and we rest fully upon Him, and we're brought further in a relationship with Christ, and now we have a place of immeasurable joy. You know, it's the same thing with this concept of hope. He says, rejoice in hope, but that hope is not separated from tribulation. In fact, in Romans chapter 12 and verse 12, it says, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, and continuing steadfastly in prayer. And all of those, by the way, are intimately connected. They're inseparable. That would be a good study on your own time sometime, maybe even a sermon that I can bring. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. While you are rejoicing in hope, there is tribulation. That hope helps you to endure it. That prayer aids you to endure it. But the tribulation is still there. It's not separated from tribulation. But even more than that, I think that what we see in Scripture is that tribulation for the faithful, for you who are spiritual... Galatians 6 and verse 1, can actually lead and is designed by God. He allows it to happen to lead us to a greater sense of our hope, which translates that into joy instead of weariness. Notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this is the point that the Apostle Paul is making. In 2 Corinthians 4, speaking of his apostolic ministry, this is what he says in verse 16 after describing all the hardship that he endures as an apostle of Christ as he bears this gospel in his earthen vessel of his body. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. You see that? We do not lose heart. It's parallel. Galatians chapter 6. Do not grow weary. We shall reap if we do not lose heart. He says, My outward man is perishing, but I don't lose heart. Why? Because the good outweighs the bad. My inward man is being renewed day by day. But I want us to be impressed by what he says next. It's not just that the good outweighs the bad that he rejoices. Don't grow weary because there's something better for you. The suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us, Romans 8 and verse 18 says. And so it outweighs the bad, but that's not all that's going on here. Notice what he says in verse 17. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It's not just that the good outweighs the bad. It's that by faith, the bad is working toward the good. By faith, I'm looking to God, and in this time that could weary me to the point of losing my faith, by faith and trust in Him, I'm going to be strengthened and come further into that relationship. My hope will be strengthened This affliction is actually working for us in eternal weight of glory. How? Notice what he says in verse 18. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What does affliction do for us? It can weary us to the point of falling away from the Lord, certainly. But if you're faithful and you really want heaven, you really want to be with God forever, what affliction can do for us as we walk by faith, not by sight, he says in the next chapter, is it starts cutting those strings that are attaching us to earth. It's not good here, so all I can do is look up there. It looks to the realm of the eternal, which that affliction cannot touch. You see that? Instead of growing weary... The Christian allows this tribulation to sever his ties to the world, draw attention evermore to the eternal reward. And as that happens, and we're looking to the gospel promises, our inward man, verse 16, is being renewed day by day. That's the idea of transformation, of putting on Christ, being prepared for that glorious image, purifying ourselves as he is pure. He says in chapter 3 and verse 18, being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. How does that happen? What led to that in this context? I am afflicted, and instead of growing weary, I look to hope. And as I look to hope, I'm less connected to the world, and my hope is strengthened. 
And so what it does is it replaces weariness with a strengthened form of hope. And all that does is leads to a greater equipment to endure the coming tribulations in our lives. Notice in Hebrews 6 and verse 19, speaking of that hope, the immutability of God's counsel, and we can have confidence in what He's promised. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This hope we have is an anchor. He's not saying the stuff that's trying to weary you will stop. He's saying now you can handle it. You have something to rejoice in. Something substantive. There's evidence for it. And you've got that evidence to, to undergird your confidence. And because you are anchored in this tempest, as you're looking toward that hope of heaven, and you see that Jesus makes sure that we're going to get there if we trust in Him, you can overcome weariness. Rejoicing in hope. Rejoicing in the Lord. And exhorting one another by allowing us to see those things we can rejoice in. Urging each other to faithfulness because, brethren, it's worth it. All that can weary us can be overcome if we simply help each other, we point each other to the truth, we see the joy and spiritual service in Christ Jesus, and we see that hope that's laid up for us as we're amassing that spiritual treasure in the name of the Lord. I hope that this lesson was beneficial to you. I kind of bit off more than I can chew once again, and so I thank you for your patience again. We want to offer an invitation this morning to any who are here this morning, who have this afternoon, who have not obeyed the gospel of our Lord. Are you wearied? Jesus says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden. You will find rest for your souls. That weariness can be taken away. That weariness can be replaced with joy and strength, hope, Resolve to do the Lord's will. It starts, though, with having the greatest cause of your weariness taken away. By being baptized into Christ, you can have your sins washed away. And we can do that for you this morning. And if there's any other spiritual need that we can assist you with, we encourage you to come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.